welcome to the Laughing Monkey Music Show. Today we have on Corey Parks. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Good, good, good. I'm glad we could finally yes. catch up. I know you've you've been doing a lot of different stuff. You've actually been doing a little bit of playing on the side. You've done some. You've changed your career a little bit. Did some uh, extracurricular stuff, and you're still creating a lot of. Um, wouldn't well, it's like it's actually like functional art. You're making cool clothes, you know. <laughs> Sorry. Right. Yeah. yeah, I make stuff in Hockett, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But you got it. Yeah. You got You got a, a, a website. You did kind of like a, a soft, yeah. a soft uh, release of that a couple months ago, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, I love to like make stuff, but then there's this whole other aspect to it, which is like marketing, like running the whole thing, doing, yep. I mean, there's, you know, this whole world of online, there's a little art to it, you know, and I, I'm interested in it, but like not enough to really, you know, uh, put the work in that you need to put into I agree like, with you. make something to I don't want to promote the show. I just want to, I just want to talk to people. I don't want to promote the show. Everybody extra effort into it. You know, I just want to do the show and then just talk to people and then put it out there into the world. And just, you know, but the extra yes. effort of, of, of putting it out there on top of, and, and I think in the internet at this point feels to me like it's a bunch of people on boxes, just yelling at each mm. other. So it's like, Oh, mm. just no focus anymore. You know, mm. which is the challenge. Now, how do you, how do you, um, how do you get yourself in that right swim lane? I guess where people are aware mm-hmm. of what you do. Um, so hopefully they'll be aware a little bit tonight uh, or today, whenever they Thanks. check us out mm-hmm. of some stuff yeah. you've been doing. Oh, thank you. Um, but we'll swirl back a little bit. You are obviously known for being the bass player extraordinaire and, um, mm-hmm. and, and most famously from your time in National Pussy. Um, you mm-hmm. want to talk a little bit about that? We'll go back a little bit in history starting out before we get to where you're at now a little bit, just for people that aren't familiar with you. Oh, or, or it's so, it's so interesting now. Um, so I'm 52. Right. And, you know, now I, um, I, when I'm talking to like older people, it's so yeah. weird. And I, and it gets to the point of like, Oh, what's the name of your band? You know? And um, cause I'll go do, I play on these blues jams on Tuesday yeah. nights, like downtown Durham at the Blue Note. And, and I just love it. And I met so many amazing people. And these are like, just, you know, like, you know, Howlin' Wind and, you know, Dave Sword and like all the Big Tech Mike and just like yeah. all the cool. And then you get Chuck Cotton and all these cool blues guys coming through. But, you know, wow. they're definitely of a, uh, of a little bit older of a generation than myself. And, you know, and all they're, although they're cool and stuff, it's like, I'm still in the South and I just don't know, like, it's still, I, I, I you know, Nashville pussy having the like pussy part come out of my mouth. Uh uh, but then everyone always laughs. And then I didn't want to follow up quickly with the Ted Nugent. I'm like, oh, you guys know Ted Nugent. You know, it's from Double Life Gonzo. And then they yeah. get, then they're like, oh, the okay. Because immediately they start thinking, right. And then it's like, oh, well, okay, well, you can look us up. And then it's just like girls in bras. <laughs> you know, like, it's like. Yeah, yeah it doesn't either. help. I mean, you're like, listen to the music either. first. Just, really... just go on and listen <laughs> to the music. Go on and stream it first because, you know, you'll hear there's music there great band though you got you know yep. we're a crushing band um i joined the band i joined one of join them because of the songs blaine sent me on a cassette tape and it had snake eyes which wasn't called snake eyes yet it was just like uh untitled mm-hmm. and then i'd eat my dust and i think it had uh five minutes to live those were the first three songs i heard and it's just i'm a i'm a punk i'm a punk rocker yes i am <laughs> so that was like, that was, I, you know, I loved his voice. I love those guitars. And then uh, Ryder on top of it, you know what I mean? It's just like, you hear those solos and you're like, wait, what? That's a girl, yeah. you know, that girl and Ryder. I don't believe Ryder ever got her dues. You know, she's probably, I, and I would say she's the best female rock and roll guitar player on the planet. <laughs> That's my feeling. She I'll put never got, she was yeah, like I, the female this young. Yeah. She never got reduced. Never, you know, never. So, uh, phenomenal. That's an interesting point, though. That's a good point. A lot of people say that people are underrated. I mean, that's under under. She's underrated because, like, most people don't even know who she is. Not even comparing her. You just don't know. You know. And there's a difference between like, and not to take one away, not to take something away from the mm-hmm. other. I have a definite preference myself, just because of you know, all the elements that came into making me who I was and things that affected me or that influenced me growing up, my parents and growing up in the seventies, my dad being a drummer, but 
I'm much, I would much rather like listen to Chuck Berry, like going, wow, now, 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 now for literally <laughs> like a minute than like somebody just like wanking and noodling super fast, even right. though what they're doing is technically like perfect or, you know, and they can hit all those notes and just, it's just insane what they can, you know, the, the what they can do with all this. Right. I just, I, phys- I, I spiritually just don't respond to it. I guess that's the thing. It's like on a spirit level, like it just does something that, the blues and sort it's not of a song it's not a song i had that discussion actually with somebody today we were talking about I'm like you can play uh you can try to really fast and kind of need to watch somebody do it but mm-hmm. it goes back to a song if you just know song you're not going to listen to it you're not going to go back to listen to it we're talking about the mm-hmm. 70s it's all about the songs we're not going to be like you know talking about a shredding solo from the 70s you're talking about a song and then you know joe walsh had a ripping solo in it yes. but, but there's a song and there's content with the solo to the song and, and you can sing the solo exactly it's it's very you lyrical can sing yeah right. you can sing this but wait for hotel california did joe alsh not write that solo not even was know. that um like the um uh i was just talking to somebody about this the other day about um who wrote the solo in hotel california but point point in case you're right it's right a, it's you can sing it it's like almost mm-hmm. a whole other layer of uh, whereas yep. some some guitarists just like it's just like watching a guy like jack off on stage or something it's, it's just, really it's just yeah there's no, there's no soul thing. Yeah. there's no yeah you know so and that goes back um, to when you were in the band but I mean, that's a writer writer plays like angus young yep hmm? yeah I agree, I agree with you actually yeah, I, was like a, I first heard i had i felt the band had an acdc feel and mm-hmm. like like um but not like sounds like a ACDC, you know, back. I mean, the guitars were loud and and and, and crunchy and raunchy, but mm. it was the energy of ACDC. I felt it was like like unbridled, early high voltage. It was just, mm. you know, in your face energy, rocking guitars. Just yes. Up. Well, but and and again, I gotta come back to Angus though, because that's what Ryder was. Like he yeah. really. I mean, think about ACDC without Angus. Even if there was like a guitar player that was comparable, it was like. That his constant movement across everything, and, and then you had me. You had a bass player that was doing that same thing. But um, like I'm, I, I, Cliff Williams and Didi Ramone are my two. We are my two favorite bass players. So that's what I wanted to sound like. Like I wasn't yeah. John Entwistle. I knew I could never. I didn't hear those melodies like John Paul Jones did. Like, but I knew I could do that. <laughs> I knew I could downstroke. I could do that. I knew I could hold down the bottom end. I knew I had rhythm. You know, I always liked to dance. So I grew up on R&B and soul music and stuff so war and funkadelic and stuff all that's what my dad played constantly so it was you know i knew i could do that so that's what i focused on getting good at you know but i was saying so like but with your bass playing it 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 was for the style of the music you're playing you i mean you have to play with the music you're playing you can't be playing you know crazy bass that it's not gonna fit with the style of the band you know you gotta play to your band and to your style of music so right that's what the music and it's just my favorite it's my favorite kind of playing you know what i mean it's just like i don't know it's you know when i when i got my that epic svt that late 60s svt that i played on you know had a like i was like i didn't pick up a bass i was 23 you know and i i was dating this guy we were living together my first guy i lived with and he was a guitar player yeah but he had like the best gear too he played an old silver tone and had like a fender twin reverb and he's an art art student like sculptor went to the kansas city art school and we wow. were living in kansas city but he like taught me about all the cool gear like right off the bat like you know oh you need to get this and oh and then there was a cool music store midtown music in kansas city and so that's where we all hung out and so we go down there's where i bought my first bass and like you know and i got a fender basement and like matt helped me pick all that stuff out and talk to me about equipment and guitars and basin and things that were made in the 50s and the 60s and into the mid 70s and you know and uh you could feel it you could there's a feeling to the instruments and, and not just the sound and stuff so uh so i i started off on good sound gear and then uh I really wanted to be in his band. I pretty much started playing bass because I wanted, I was, had, I just was so madly in love with him and I wanted the bass player spot opened up and I was like, all right, let's do this. You know? So, um, <laughs> and then he said, the first thing you need is you need a bigger app. And so he goes, well, who do you want to sound like? And I go, what do I get? And he goes, who do you sound, who do you want to sound like? And I said, Cliff Williams from ACDC. And he goes, we'll find out what he plays. 
And so that was an epic SVT, late 60s SVT. And wow, same with okay. DD. And I said, or DD Ramon. And they both played the same app, they, um, which I thought was cool. And uh, one of the ones, one of the old Ampex from uh, uh, Linden, New Jersey. Yeah. So there's a factory in Linden where they were like made. <laughs> I think it was maybe in the transition between when, uh, when Magnavox used to own Ampeg and then they sold it to St. Louis Music Company. But these amps that came out of there just, they, they packed an extra punch. They were extra loud, extra sustained. They just were beautiful. So that's, that was my first uh, bass amp. Like true right out of the gate. <laughs> you, you, you had well, your tone was great right out of the gate. I mean, you know, it was it was yeah. the time, and you you learned all, all the right stuff because, I mean, let's face it, everyone every nowadays goes back to the gear that you're talking about right now because that yeah. that's the sound, the warmth. It's got you know, that's what people want. That's what you want, and that's and the thing is too, because I talk to girls when I mean, you play you, you if you want to learn to play, you just get something to play on for sure, but right. you want to like like have your sights already on your, on your, you know, like, uh, like when I picked up that app, it was like $1,500 back then. That was still, that was like a lot of money. And that was in the nineties. And then, um, I wanted a lot of money. Uh, and, you know, I wanted to play a fender. That was a lot of money. And then I went to play a fender. Uh, yeah. so he took me out to fly by night music in Neosho, which was yep. like, still is like one of the best vintage places like in the country right and that walked yeah. in and they had a whole wall of fenders of vintage fenders like a huge wall and i saw this 78 cherry sunburst that was solid maple with like mother pearl block inlays and in it and stuff and i was like ah that one you know and the same thing it was like you know it was like 14 1500 and like that was i had a honda longhorn but that my fender was my first base like that was my first you know um and I had them all the way up until, you know, <laughs> they got destroyed. That's a whole other story. But wow. at any rate, I don't know. So I think, I think that like having the right instruments and stuff, that stuff does matter. And I worked all summer. I worked at the Hillbilly Bowl and like I, I waited tables. I saved my money. I did, I did a, a layaway on the base and stuff. Layaway. I got it at a pawn shop, the amp and in anyway, I made payments on them and till they were mine. But how and important so is that? That was a lot of money. You did that, you know, as a young girl, that was a lot to have to try to pay it for. You know what I'm saying, though? Yeah, I think your instruments, paying you know it. My kids I bought think their it made, own. Because I was playing on the gear of rock stars. Yeah, it made me feel like a rock star. It made me feel already out of that, that I like had to live up to the gear that I was playing on, I guess. I don't know. No, but, but I mean, just, just like you earning it and buying it. Like, even my kids, I come, I'm like, I could just buy them for them. And they're like, no, we're going to buy our own gear. Really? Mm. Like, that's important, I think. You know, yeah, that, that that's huge. So you doing that is like you're really just owning. It. It's, it's really a commitment to something when you're doing. You put that much energy into it, you know, than just being like, yeah, you know, <laughs> that's your love, you know? Mm, I, I, you know. I I think it was like the like the first time I uh, and he was the one that breathed fire, so I got oh, that from Matt as well. Oh, wow. He was the one that breathed fire in the band, and he's kind of a dick and like, he would never show me how to do it. I, but I knew what he used. I kept asking, I was like, show me, please teach me how to do that. And he was like, no. And, uh, but I saw what he used. I knew the, I knew the type of paraffin he used. I watched him make the torches. I watched yeah. him actually physically do it. And so I, when I, we split, I was like, I'm just going to try it. And then when I went to national pussy, I was like, Oh, by the way, did I tell you, I know how to breathe fire. I'd never be fired before. I had just saw him do it so many times. And I was like, I know I can do it. So, um, but uh, at any rate, so thank you, Matt Jewell, for that fire and the amazing uh, the year uh, lectures that I got. When, so, when was the last time you actually uh, breathed fire? Because that's that's a pretty awesome little skill that you have there. Um, both to shrine um, when we were in Europe in 2019. Good. So, Don't let that that's no, but yeah, no, you, you once you know how to do it, you know how to do it. Yeah, you know, it's kind of there. Yeah, but you always want to be able to do it. like even if, even if it's a parent teacher conference, just sometimes <laughs> I you gotta say, kids put it out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you can still grow old and still do it. You know, that's awesome. That's true. Um, that's true. So actually, you would. So um, you've still been playing. So after you, you did leave uh, National Pussy and you know had some changes in your life, but you've always continued to play. Until as you're talking now, you've been in a couple of different acts mm-hmm. still play now to this day you didn't stop playing you know which is important you know 
you, you know what I'm saying. You're not. Sort of. Well, sort of. So let's talk about. I'm so, going to be honest. I don't just like sit around and play my bass. Like I don't just do that. I don't think a I, lot of people sit really around and play their instruments. I, sh- I, I really need to get myself an acoustic guitar or something. Cause I've just, I just don't just sit around and play my bass. I should, I would be a lot better if I did, but I just don't. Well, it's not fun. I like playing with other people. Well, <laughs> I, I just think that, do it by myself. I think a lot of artists are actually like that, that they don't really play, you know, and, and you know, to talk to them during COVID, I'll be like, so, you know, Cause it's interesting. Like who do you have a practice routine or some people like oh, after the tour, I put the guitar away and these are guitars are crazy. And you're like, like, yeah, I haven't touched in a year. If I touch the guitar right now, I don't have calluses. I probably, my fingers would probably bleed. I'm like, what? And these are like guitars that are known. Like, so you're, you're in company. Nobody really, they want to engage with people. And I think that's one of the yeah. things that's, that's locked down has changed a lot with a lot of musicians, you know, <laughs> they're all losing their calluses because no one's been playing in a room with somebody or they'll, you know, yes. they'll, whatever. I think that's one of the most important things of, in probably this last maybe generation of musicians that's different now. We are not in your laptop and recording. I think that the contact you guys had, you know, the, the, the mm. going to see a show, like, you know, like natural pussy or something you see in the energy in the crowd. It's just, it's insanity. It's like a circus with music. It's, you know, it was, it, crazy. It was like, the, it, it was like the last, cause I, you know, it's interesting because right at, when I was leaving the band, so it would have been 2000, right? Like that was the last shows I played in mm-hmm. Europe was in um, like July of 2000. And, um, and that's right when the internet was like coming in and cell phones were coming in. Like we, like Ryder kind of got a cell phone towards the very end, like the last like couple months I was in the band, but like yeah. we didn't really have a computer, we didn't have a computer or like I didn't have a phone or anything like that. It's so crazy. When you think back to back then, it was just like, how did we exist? Yeah, right. It's like, like now you leave like, your phone, like, you're like, oh my God, I don't have my phone on me. <laughs> it's like, I'm like a wild man. I don't bring my phone with me. I feel like I don't know who I am anymore. It's, it's awesome. Oh my God. But that's crazy. He was towards the end of you leaving. I think it's around the time I came across you as a band, though. And I didn't even mm-hmm. was even aware that you had actually left at that point because you know it wasn't like the internet was full of you know reliable information. Not like it is now, of course. Yeah. <laughs> a little sarcasm. <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying there wasn't as much information out there. And I'm sure a lot of people always thought you were probably still in the band for the very longest time. You know. Yeah. Afterwards. Oh, that's right. Because we hadn't really like we didn't have social media. We didn't even have a Facebook account. No, but what you had like, the, we had, the album no, cover, though, no, that was it. Oh, wait, right. there was no face. I don't know if there was even Facebook. There wasn't even Facebook yet. No, <laughs> wasn't there like MySpace? I didn't know MySpace. MySpace just seemed creepy. You know what's so funny? is It's like, right? So so when I moved back, so I was living at a house. This was in like late part of 2000, but it was like within the year that I left the band. Yeah. And I was living at this house. Um in Silver Lake on Lucille and it was a house that belonged to a uh, fatty Arbuckle. Do you know who that is? Yeah. He was a, the silent, silent film star who like yeah. had the scandal because and, like, like she was young and she died apparently or, and then he was cast out of Hollywood. And so this is the mansion or like, it was like a mansion. I mean, you know, it was beautiful and it was in Silver Lake. I rented like a couple rooms there I knew some other girls, Tony Smith, like who she's now been an amoeba for like millions of years. And like, uh, Tony was, she reminded me and I hadn't even thought about this was after Lemmy passed. And she said, do you remember when you brought Lemmy to, to the house to meet me? At Le- and I was like, no. And she goes, oh my God, Corey. She goes, I like, I was out partying all night long. I come in. It's like, I'm barely laid my head down. It's like, seven o'clock eight o'clock in the morning or something and she said and all of a sudden you're like knocking at my door and you go hey tony tony just wait come just I, and she's like i'm just i'm sleeping i'm sleeping just come out here come out here come out for a sec come in the living room come in the living room and she goes and then i walk out my living room there's lemmy like sitting in my living room you know what i mean she's like a massive motorhead fan and so she goes and she had a bunch of rottweilers right and one of the biggest rottweilers named theo and so she said uh she's like oh my god she's flipping out and she said there's nothing to drink they've been partying all that long nothing to drink in the house and so lemmy goes down to uh to the market right down there on sunset lucille there's like a, a yeah. liquor store still there and so he comes back with she goes he comes back with a, a thing of pringles a big thing of maker's mark and uh and coke and a two liter coke and she said, um, and so she goes, like, he, 
she get, he comes back and gives them to her and then, and she goes back and she's bringing the drinks and she goes and when I walked in she goes and that's the first time that I ever saw a computer like <laughs> so like she had a computer like an Apple computer and I'd never seen one when I moved in that was like my first time of like oh, wow. a home computer you know and she goes when when I walked in you were teaching Lemmy how to Google hit Motorhead on the uh I like how to Google himself on no because I kept finding I was like using Google for the first time and I kept showing Lemmy all these cool pictures yeah. I was like oh my god look at this amazing pictures like where did you find that where did you find that I was like on Google on Google he's like what is the Google <laughs> she goes I came in you he was feeding my you know 200 pound Rottweiler Pringles and you were showing him how to Google Lemmy and Motorhead on the on the internet for the first time it was pretty funny Awesome. So uh, I didn't even remember that. You, yeah, you, you've had a, quite a relationship with him. It, you, he really, you know, you guys got along really good, you know. And he's the kind of guy that I don't think anyone's ever said anything bad about him. He's, <sighs> no. I don't think I've ever heard anything bad about him. I, I've read a billion books on him, and I've always don't feel like I know him at all because there's something mm. about him. Um, everything he's done, I mean, even him wearing those cut-off shorts is forgivable because he's Lemmy. You know the picture I'm talking about. <laughs> so back he makes everything cool. Shirts. He yeah, just he makes everything those, cool. Yeah, he'd wear those short shorts with like boots and the short shorts and a jacket. And he's funny. You don't, Scott, you don't what Scotty Ian from Anthrax says the best thing where he's like, those, those aren't shorts. He goes, he goes these, those are pants. These are shorts. <laughs> totally. Totally. Oh. Well, he was, Euro, he was Euro too. So it was like, he just always wore Speedos and like, you know what I mean? You pretty much, anytime you went over there in the summertime in that apartment, because it was hot, it's yeah. like, the windows were open, the the front door was open, the screen door was closed, and let me be sitting there in a cowboy shirt and his speedos. That's like that was his pretty much his name main gear for the summertime. Or no cowboy shirt, just the speedos. Which is really pretty funny because he was very successful. So he very he lived a very modest life. He could have had mm -hmm. air, at least air conditioning yeah. at the very least. You know. He, he was very soft. He was he was very he was very well off. Yes. He could have lived in any and as a matter of fact. Uh, when I moved to Laurel Canyon, there was a, a little house at the bottom of the canyon. It was kind of close to sunset. So it was like right when you drew, before you even got to the country store, there was like a little row of houses. And the guy that owned them was like one of the founders of the Magic Castle. He used to be an illusionist. Like I thought that was kind of cool on top of it. And, but it was this beautiful little, um, a little uh, two bedroom house that was yeah. like, and anyway, I took Lemmy to look at it because I was like, come move to the canyon. You need a bigger place. And like, yeah. and he just, and he loved it. And he ended up meeting this old guy called Lemmy Youngfella. Cause he was like, he was like 90 years old. And he's like, I said, oh, come here. And this is my friend Lemmy. So I'm brought to see the place. And he goes, come here, young fella. Let me show you around. And, um, but he just, he there was so much stuff in that place like even when he did move out and they bought a condo like literally a block away <laughs> like a one block away when he bought a condo uh you could see his old apartment from the condo that he moved to that's how close it was so Holy when he bought God. the new place he still they still kept that apartment because he probably also because he was paying rent the same rent that he you know or not much more than what he paid when he got the place back you know 25 yeah. years or something 20 plus years he lived there same but it's too bad it was two rooms mm, it's two rooms and there was just stuff like from the ground all the way up to the well ceiling. i can imagine like, there was, was a, a little row what i mean i can imagine he was a collector of, of all kind of uh, military memorabilia Every i mean yeah yeah it's everything. got taken up space like anything that's insane that's everything fun. and you know what but you know what 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 overwhelmingly i would say almost all of it <laughs> everything in that apartment were all things that were um, given to him by the fans they were really? all there were stuff he collected certainly right but but the stuff he hung on the walls the things that he put were all things that were given to him by the fans yeah all things the fans had made for him you know and you can actually even see it in the documentary when he goes around and he's talking about like he'll talk about the little figurine that's like not made perfectly and the legs are wobbly and with the same reverence that he does somebody that made like this mosaic portrait that just you know took like like hundreds of hours to make you know yeah and 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 an eye to be able to do that. He loved both of them equally. He loved the things that his fans made for him, and he surrounded himself with those things. You know, it's amazing. How did you end up with him? Being coming so close. I mean, what did that? 
uh, it was written in the stars, I think, you know, so, you know, you and you just meet those people that you just, you know, you, you know, you just, you lock eyes with them and yeah. there's just this whole connection with them. And we, you know, played our first show in Athens. We only, we only rehearsed for like three months and then we played our first show and we were, weren't even called Nashville Pussy. We were the flyer. I actually have the first flyer from our first show. We were called Hell's Half Acre, which was the area that the first Kentucky Fried Chicken was built. And Blaine was reading this, like, some of the biography of Kentucky <laughs> Fried Chicken, Colonel Sanders or something. And um, we made these stickers that said Hell's Half Acre and stuff. And then we changed it on stage that night. Blaine actually walked in the door. He had been listening to Double F Gonzo on the way. Yeah. We pra- I lived in North Carolina. Blaine Ryder lived in Nashville. And Adam Marjorie lived in Kentucky. Wow. So when I heard they were looking for a bass player, uh, Blade said we rehearse in Kentucky, which was um, it's four uh, four hundred miles away. So that's how far I had to get to go to practice. Uh, I drove from North Carolina to Kentucky to go jam. I didn't have a car, so I was taking bus rides, seventeen hour <laughs> bus rides to get there. I just showed wow. up there with I didn't even have a bass in the beginning. I think I'd hawked my bass, but um, but so we just jammed for like three months. We would go, I think, like every other weekend or just about, and then I'd stay for the weekend, and then we just you know, we only had like five originals or six originals, five originals and the rest were covers. Pretty much all the natural pussy sets, if you look back over, I mean, including our records, uh, half the record is covers. They're songs we didn't write. You know, I mean, you never, no one ever called us a cover band, you know, ever. But pretty much half the set was almost always covers, you know. And uh, we're, our goal was never to try and get record deals. Our goal was to be the best live rock and roll band. We wanted to be the band that all the other bands came to see. Like that was the goal. And like, and we just wanted to blow everyone off the stage. So that's what we did. We just worked on perfecting our stage show. And then we all, we played that first show. And then their Blaine Riders place burned down in Nashville, their apartment. So uh they needed to move and I was they were like are we gonna do this let's do this and we loved Athens we played our first show there so we're like let's move to Athens and so I went down there and I found us a house and uh section eight was section eight housing um the last house on Barber Street at the end of the street before you got to the Dyson chicken processing plant so it was it did not smell very good but you got used to it but we paid 600 bucks and it was like 3,000 square feet, a five bedroom house. It was huge. And it sat like on acres and acres. So we could, you know, jam as long as we wanted. We could, we got a roommate and then we basically moved into the house. And, um, and then I started booking the band. Um, I wasn't, I'm not a songwriter. Uh, And so I think that one of the things that made Natural Pussy really successful was that like, we all sort of worked together to to whatever we everyone contributed what they were good at you know and, and the, the yeah and the, the, it's interesting because they talk about this in the program you know uh like when people go to like Al-Anon and stuff or like relationship mm-hmm. stuff they always say you know there's three entities in this relationship there's you there's the other person and then there's the relationship and that's the third entity and you and it's the same with the business and the same with the band it's like the band is its own entity. It's like a person. And the, and the only way to make it successful, to make the, the venture successful is if you put the band and you put the business before everything else, all of us as individuals get on the backside, the band has to come first. And that's what we did. So, and I, I believe that's a huge part of why, you know, because, uh, <laughs> because if you would have looked at all the things that they would have said, they're not going to, you're never going to be as successful. Like, we, you couldn't promote our band. You could never get played on the radio or on the, on the TV because our name contained one of the seven deadlies. There was no internet. So it was just TV or radio. That was it. It is crazy uh, to have that name. Like you like, know, you know, how, uh, how are you going to promote that name? Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is coming on the heels of like Rafter Nirvana. And so it's like all these grunge bands and Eddie Vedder's and like, you know, our singers, like, you know, 34 short, fat, bald, <laughs> like, you know, like, it just, there was all these millions that we, and couldn't sing really. You know what I mean? He can scream. He's got a good voice. Blaine has, a, I love Blaine's voice, but he's not like a Bon Scott. You know what I mean? Um, and we were really a punk band, you know, and we, you know, uh, and, but we really like did the impossible. We re- I, and I really believe that it's, you know, so, so none of those things really matter if you've got like a group of people and you guys have a singleness of purpose, you know, and you focus on that and put it first. I believe that impossible can become possible you know so 
it was a good time for you guys though too because that was Great a, lot, a lot a lot but a lot, a lot of the, the music world was breaking from the normal rock it was like it was a changing of the guards you know mm-hmm. um well you know and that's like the grunge but also like alternative and alternative men a lot of the bands kind of snuck in that wouldn't have done that like you guys snuck mm-hmm. in the alternative moniker um like a primus um some of these bands that weren't the, the shoegazing type that were different you know got kind of got in there you know you know poppier mm-hmm. bands that were still kind of rockier and um, yeah because everything was so different back then and your jane's addiction and stuff it kind of gave you guys a little bit of room a little wiggle room to get some mm-hmm. of those that audience yep that's right across too, it's, mm-hmm. oh really what what, what through just like through all the bands back, back through all those bands and look like who's going on like check out the bands and whatever and immediately mm-hmm. it was the album cover that famous album cover. <laughs> that, was, that was Blaine. That was Blaine's concept. Yeah, Blaine's um, idea. Well, because nothing sells better than that, than that kind of album cover. I mean, if you, you know, and 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 I'm I'm 51. It's like just like you when you go back to the days of. I'm oh, 52. Yeah. So 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 when you go back and you talk about album covers and songs, what you do when you couldn't hear a song? You went to the record store. You flip it through. Oh, that's a cool album cover. I'm gonna get this one. <laughs> Didn't hear it. That's a cool <laughs> album cover, right? So what are you gonna do with that generation? That's a cool album cover. I'm gonna have to hear this one. You know, that's from that generation. Um, but you guys have the music to back it up, though. And it, and it, the music kind of is the soundtrack to what you thought it would be. Yeah, I love that first record, you know, and we recorded that. We recorded that first album um, with uh, at Egg Studios um, with Conrad Uno in Seattle. Um, and that board was the original board from Stax records so yeah. it was like booker t and the mgs and wilson pickett ain't no sunshine was recorded on the same board that national pussy did let them eat pussy and it was all real to you know half angel to real yeah. and uh we, di- we just did like i think we did like two 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 versions of each two or three versions of each song pick the best and then lead guitar and vocals we were done we made the whole record in like five days you know less than five days mixed it from the road while we were in canada but it was, you really, I love Let Me Pussy because you really capture, it really captures the, like we had come off just doing, I think we did like 316 live shows our first year. So it was like, we just, we never came off the road. We just, you know, it was like, okay, let's go here. And then we always went with another band. So we just always had fun because we had our, our brothers and our friends we we're always playing with and we kind of compete for headlining spots, like trying to outdo each other. So there was a really healthy, a healthy competition and um you know uh and it, like you said it was just a different time you know it's like we had flip side and maximum rock and roll and you know there were so many cool bands at, out at the time right you know glucifer helicopters you know zeke uh the humpers i don't know there was just a lot of cool we got a chance to play with a lot of cool bands you know that were all that, that was the time though. a lot of those bands some of them are, are still surviving because they have their own um earned legacy you know, mm-hmm. which is great. A lot of those, you do almost like you can do like your, um, your winning lap around right now touring because they've earned their success and they've legacy, but a lot of bands can't come out and do that anymore. It's not the same. You, you it was a perfect, it's a sweet spot mm. for you guys to come out, you know, all those bands. It was, it was a really <laughs> special time. Um, it was a special time. Now it's, you know, not I that. don't know now. I don't know now. It was like the last that I was talking to someone about this other day, like, like before the internet, mm-hmm. you know, it's like when you, when you wanted to know about something, you know, you're like interested in something, like you said, you go down to the record store yeah. and you'd be flipping through the records, like looking at the covers, right? It's like, you had to get off your ass and go find it. You had to yeah. go place, you had to go, you had to actually get out. And then you'd meet other people when you're at the place that yeah. were like looking for the same thing. And that's how a lot of bands are forming. And, um, Making but copies now, of tapes of each other. Hey, check you it out. You don't have to do anything. No, it's a click. Yeah. Yep. And, and that's where yeah, it's Yeah, and now it's just a click away. Right. And it's all about who's got the likes and stuff. And But, but when we did it, it was like, yeah, you know, check out this tape. Check out this tape at school or, or records. Come on over my house. So I got these, you know, I got this group to check out or this album to check out, you know. And I know generation before that was even, um was like, was like record parties. They would talk mm-hmm. about, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Um, who, totally. Uh, Angry Anderson from Rose Tattoo, he was telling me he used to, they used to get, you know, stoned and they used to have these record parties when they were younger, you know? 
because it's always so it's always been going on like to, to, to hear and it's usually always it always goes back to like the old soul music too mm-hmm. which, is, which, is really, which is really um you know a common theme we're always mm-hmm. back to. agreed 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 so, so wow so you're in a band from yeah five five years you're in the band uh yeah we started the band in 95 and then i left in 2000 yeah like after a uh, pie so Mm-hmm. That's, that's yeah. a long five years though you really lived it up your five yeah. years was probably like i don't know like 30 years for somebody else <laughs> you got a lot in yeah, we years. crammed a lot yeah because it, it wasn't like people like now and like oh we're getting ready to go on tour we never like we were just on tour for five straight years that was like our because that was our thing was like you know like i said we just wanted to be the best live band so that was our moniker like Mercury took out an ad in Guitar Player Magazine with our photo and it said the heart, National Pussy, the hardest working, quote unquote, the hardest working band in show business uh, as a spinoff James Brown, obviously. Obviously. And then Blaine would do that part of the set. So he would do this thing where he'd like, you know, I can't take it. I can't take it. Like pass out on the stage and then a roadie would come out and put some over his shoulders and he'd try and get back up. And, you know, <laughs> it was, you know, it was like the thing with the kiss or the thing that me and Ryder did. And then once we started getting someone to be able to do lights for us to like really enhance that. And I mean, and you know, we were on the road all the time. We were fighting and getting along and we had to do that fucking kiss every single night. <laughs> I like, sometimes when you see some shit going down in some of those videos where like, she'll grab my bra, like pull it and I'm playing. So I can't really do anything with like my you guys got pretty, out, pretty so. crazy. Yeah. Back then we'd You're bite right. each other. Yeah. We'd bite each other. Like all sorts of, we weren't getting along, but we always still put on, it was always still for the fans, you know, we always still put on a good show, but there was definitely like things going on behind the, behind the scenes, you know, when y'all live together, you're on thing, it's, you know, I, and I then when understand. you get thrown yeah. success or money, all, you know, your shit comes up. So, you know. Well, I, I always joke, I'm like, I can't go across the town in my in the same car with my family without somebody getting in a fight. I couldn't imagine <laughs> being on a tour in a van with yeah. full personalities. You know, with success and or drugs or just being tired or not having money, you know, and then just being trapped in, you know, in a little metal box. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we had two at that point, I think like pretty quickly, like I would say after like maybe the first year when we bought that second band, like maybe year or two, yeah. we bought our second band. And then uh but like I rode with the roadies. So we had that, like the 15 passenger with all the gear, but I like made my own. I like to drive. I, I, I'm a driver, yeah. you know, I like to drive. So I could like smoke weed and just kind of the thing, play my own tunes and stuff like that. And then they had the custom van and that's what they rode in. And I think we were kind of, you know, like I just, you know, I mean, there's a reason why Lemmy and I, <laughs> one of the re- many reasons why we gravitated towards each other, but right. we definitely lived a very similar lifestyle. So. That's crazy. You uh, were you actually were driving the roadies and you were the separate yeah. man. That's pretty yeah. funny. It was they had the custom van. That was the first one we got. And the custom van was nice. Then we had a trailer on the back and we all rode in that. And um and then the second van we bought was the 15 passenger, and then we had a cage put in the back. And then uh, my husband at the time, and then some of the roadies, like his, he, he brought some guys from Indiana and his buddies and they were all roadies and my brother was a roadie. So um, they built back so that I could have my own little, like they made me a bed that had like a lock on it. I could put my shit under there and I wouldn't have to worry about anybody stealing it. And I had my own TV and like a VCR because I don't think we even had DVDs yet. Do yeah. we even have DVDs? Was it all still VCRs? I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah um but yeah so i have my own little jam in there so you know um but yeah that's pretty, that's pretty fun it's pretty awesome <laughs> so you did that for five years and then you uh left and then you took some time mm-hmm. what did you mm-hmm. do in the downtime when you left did you kind of well when i left i got sober you know i was right. my my husband who was also one of our roadies you know um died and I was using a lot of drugs and I mean, always like drugs, you know, I needed to get my shit together. Yeah. I needed to, you know, do some healing and stuff. So I, um, I moved to, I moved to LA and then that's when I kind of started my journey and doing that. And the first job I had, I was working at a restaurant called Le Du Cafe. 
-hmm. And it was owned by this woman, Michelle LeMay, and uh, her husband's this guy named Rick Owens. And her, you know, she's, they've been together a long time, but it was like they lived across the street. Yeah. And so I was the uh, hostess there. But like unbeknownst to me, so it's basically like a big craftsman house that they just dropped in a parking lot on Holly Boulevard. So kind of unbeknownst to me, like Michelle was kind of a big deal, like in the fashion world. And she's friends with like everyone from like, you know, Jean-Paul Gaultier to oh, wow. there's like on any given night, there'd be like Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Monday nights were like the tits night. There's always paparazzi out there, puffy, like all these people. And I was basically the person who worked the door. And, but you know, what's interesting was I was like, when I got that job, just coming off the telling National Pussy. And at that time, right. I actually was living in a sober living. Like uh, Music Cares was like taking care of me and they put me in a sober living. I went to treatment for like 30 days. I went to sober living and had this old white 70 Cadillac Coupe DeVille. And I uh, got this job at Ledoux. And I remember calling them because like, you know, and it was just my ego or whatever. But it was like, first I was going through this thing of like, fuck, I was the bass player in National Pussy. And I'm like, who the fuck am I now? Like now I'm just Corey and now I'm a hostess right. and now I'm sitting people for dinner that I was sitting next to at the Grammys the year, mm-hmm. like last the year before. So like, and I felt kind of, I, you know, I sort of learned the difference, I think between like being humbled or humiliated. I felt humiliated, but that wasn't at all. Let me, and let me was like, you know, Corey, it's not what you do. It's how you do what you do. Yeah. You know, I go, what do you mean by that? He goes, what time are you going on? I was like, I would be there at five o'clock. And he goes, okay, cool. I'll be there at six. And so Lemmy came down and of course Rick was a huge Motorhead fan and Michelle's yeah. like cool and they all know. And even though it was a real high end French sort of restaurant or whatever, it was like, they brought a chair for Lemmy and Lemmy sat at the front. It like, there was a, it was in a parking lot. And then when you walked up, I was the first person you saw and there was a little table right there and there was a walkway with all this Jasmine that went all the way down. And then they had seating. They created outdoor patio and fireplace and you could sit inside. Oh, wow. It was super cool. So let me like sat at the front with me and um, he uh, would just sit and hung out there with me. And a couple of times he took the, the uh, he took the menus. Do you know that actor Tim Roth? He played Mr. Was it Mr. Pink in um, Reservoir Dogs? Yeah. He's like an yeah. English actor, Tim Roth. Right. Anywho, let me like sat him <laughs> for dinner. He like <laughs> sat at the thing and he took the, the menus and walked down the thing and sat someone and sat Tim Roth for dinner, him and his wife for dinner. And oh it was God. like, that is hilarious. Uh, and so, um, and then he would just kind of come and hang out there with me. And then it was, he, you know, like made it cool. <laughs> He made it cool. That's a great you know? story. Like, see, like he can't be any cooler than Aaron. You, <laughs> you hear that? I mean, you know, he's the best. Yeah, he was the best. You know, and that's, uh, that's important though that you you. First off, it's funny that you went. You actually went to L.A. to get off of drugs because. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like I don't know going hunting to become a, a vegetarian. It's it really just sounds weird. Um, <laughs> right, but it's, totally, it's, totally. it's amazing. But but that's quite a young age to still go through all that and, and be like, to realize that that's such an important thing, you know, your ego and, and what's really important of who you are. I mean, you, you still got grabbed onto that at a very young age, especially going what you went, went through and then to, to turn, you know, and it, well, really it, yeah, and you, know so, you know, what's so interesting is that, um, uh, had I not taken that job, uh, I would have never, my life would have never gone into fashion. Like yeah. I, like I've always sewn, but I would have never thought of that as like a potential career for me at all. I would have never, I never wanted to go to fit. I just, you know, I just never would have thought of it, but because I took the job at Ledoux, mm-hmm. Lemmy comes over. Now it's like cool and okay, this is good. And I'm starting to like it and I'm relaxing into it. And, uh, and so I start working like six nights a week there. And uh, I started uh, like friends of mine that were stylists and I was just wearing my gear and I was sewed lots of patches on my jackets from being on the road and I'd find cool stuff and I'd make my jackets just hand sewing. And then a stylist was like, oh, can you make one of those for me? And I said, yeah. So I made her one. And then some other stylist was like, oh, can you make one for me? And I was like, yeah, okay. So I made her one. And then uh, I was just sitting at the front. And because Michelle, the owner, was cool, she let me, like, sew while I was sitting. It was slow. And then the owner of Maxfield, which is, like, 
it's like the biggest boutique in LA pretty much is like Gucci. They sell Gucci all couture there and stuff. Yeah. But he, Tommy Purse walks in and he's like friends with the owner of the restaurant. And then she said, uh, he's like, what are you doing? What are you making? And I was like, oh, I make these jackets for my friends. He's like, oh, well, he like called his buyer right there and was like, can you come down and see us tomorrow and bring some samples? And I brought the two, the only two I made. And then I ended up, they ordered a bunch of stuff and I was in the store for 10 years. I sold exclusively there for like 10 years. It was crazy. And I got all these clients from them, like Lenny Kravitz. My whole career started as a result of being a Maxwell. And so had I not taken the job, you know, so I always tell this to when I meet young girls and stuff, and even, especially when I was on the shrine, out with the shrine and stuff. And I got a chance to actually be around like the public again. And I met all their young band and I was meeting all these young girls and we were sitting outside talking and stuff. And it was like, you know, anytime I hear any girl, any young girl and they're telling me like, Oh, I don't want to do this. Like, I know I'm better. I know I can do more with my life, you know? And I always just feel like it, like that, you know, it's such a good lesson that, you know, when the universe hands us something, it may not look the way that we want it in our minds that we, you know, that we want it to look like, like it might feel like we're settling for something. It might feel like it's almost like the ego comes in and tells you all these things, but you have no idea that just by saying yes, when you're like needing something at the time, I need money, <laughs> I need a job. I mean, that's the truth matter. I need money. And it was like, uh, by saying yes, it's like you just open yourself up. Yes opens up possibilities for you. Yes opens up things being able to start coming to you. Had I not opened myself up to that and I not like right-sized myself of like, you know, just kind of be a worker among workers instead of and having to be like up on so it. You were really. Yep. Firing yeah, on all cylinders. Yeah. So, but that, that ended up starting a whole new career for me as a result of working at, like taking that job, you know, so. Uh, I love your stuff. I cool. really has loved it. It's pretty cool. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Thank you. You, you, um, so actually people can also check that while we're referencing it. Oops. A lot of the stuff is you have a lot of items on your, on your website too. So people can still mm -hmm. get their hands on some of your work. Your yeah. Story. I have a bunch of, do you see my, like, you sell shirts right there? Yes. <laughs> literally, you, you don't even know. I've got it. I've really got to be more proactive about, I kind of like bought a bunch of things. And then I was like, Oh God, I just got kind of overwhelmed with like having to, you know what I mean? Right. Um, but yeah, so these are, uh, yeah, like my, uh, I'll show you a couple. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this, and then my friend James Kincannon, mm -hmm. he did this artwork. Isn't that rad? Yes. That is, that is Isn't great. that so good? That's all drawn by hand. He's this young artist from New York. His name is James Concannon. Wow. And he does all those cool, uh, like, drink Iggy Pop. Have you seen those cool? He did this design. Um, he did this design for me. And he also did the, uh, the Snake Eyes design. And he actually, these are all hand, like, the, see how, so, wow. see how it says ace, 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 ace. You see that? Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, wow. So this was his Snake Eyes watching you. So this was, I said, I want you to do some Lemmy tribute artwork for me. So oh, yeah. he drew these. He's this, he, yeah, like I said, he's this young New York, uh, well, he's upstate New York, but um, New York artist. And so he made those. And uh, and then this was a little, uh, our little tribute to uh, Gigi Allen. Is it backwards? Is it reading no, backwards? No, I'm, I'm just reading it and laughing. Why do you scum? Yeah pretty funny it's a banana it's a I, I, banana. I got that but i didn't I he didn't has cowboy boots in a, in a studded collar do you see yeah I, it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty funny because uh i didn't catch the whole reference of the banana and and ggl that's pretty funny to combine those two together it's pretty <laughs> yeah so it's just kind of like fun stuff like that you know what i mean yeah yeah they're great so just teas little patches i do yep. like these little make these little guys i make these on the sewing machine see that guy back there that's my that's my little uh embroidery machine right there you got a super strong one right the, to do all the the heavy mm -hmm. that's right do you like yeah so that's just kind of like patches that i make so you can see where i've like you start it so you do it on satin then you draw it and then you embroider it in it's pretty cool it's pretty fun oh, wow that's yeah, really like hard it starts off like this like a piece of fabric yeah. And then they've got this like stabilizer. It's like a sticker and you put it on the back. And then I, I basically like hand draw it 
that's how it starts, you know? And then I like sew it down and I put some patent leather and the, you know, yada, yada, bada bing, bada boom. It's a lot of know? work. And that explains why, you know, you, <laughs> it's a lot. I, I, you know, and they, that the control of the it's needle so is the worst. That's going to be the hardest thing ever. You know, it's, I, it's, I, I, it's interesting. It's like a, uh, the free motion embroidery is like, um, it's like tattooing on fabric. So you yeah. can like, you know, you basically, yeah, you basically like draw, see Like I basically draw it in pen and mm-hmm. then it's got a little switch. So instead of having a feed dog that pulls the fabric through, you know, like have you ever used a sewing machine? Yeah. Have you ever sewn? Yeah. Not very well. Like I had, a, they made me do it in high school. But you, you used I, one. My hand looked like a pin cushion when I was done. It was just not good for anybody. Oh, right. well, you've used about. a sewing machine, a sewing machine, right? Yep. So, you know, when you put your, you drop the foot down and then mm-hmm. the feed dog underneath is what pulls the fabric through. So you're drying right. it, you sew and it goes, right. So my machine has a little switch on the bottom and so it drops the feed dog down. And then instead of it having a foot, I buy this, it's like a called a quilting foot. And what it does is it's got a bar. So when the needle goes up and down the foot, which is a circle, and it's see-through it goes up and down with the needle so when i hit the put the pedal to the metal there's no feed dog so i can go free motion and you just basically oh. you put it on as hard as you can go and then you can just draw with it and you're like you know that's kind of like what i do with you know like like this see if you can see on that that could be really see? good kind of fun bad. right yeah it's really gonna be challenging though <laughs> I would sew my hands yeah. together. It wouldn't be good for anybody. It's bless you for doing that. I couldn't. <laughs> my hands were like, like really, I'd have like webbed hands and stuff. Uh, webbed yeah. hands? Well, yeah. If I put them through there, I would sew them together or something weird. I don't oh, know. okay. Yeah, I, that's I a was skill. Like, real life, like no. man or something. No, like, no. what's that all about? Okay, no, no, I'm not a Kennedy. Doesn't the Kennedys have the webbed feet, right? <laughs> so, um, that's amazing. Feet. So oh, that's creepy. It's like those, it's like those socks and those, those, the, the, the toes, the, the weird toe things. That's when you get weird. Ooh. You know talking about? Yeah, weird. that is weird. Those are weird. Well, they have shoes like that now too, that have like the rubber on the bottom and yeah. they're like each individual toe goes in. I, I don't need to see that. I think, I think we none of us need to see that. No, whoever mentioned that it's gotta be like a serial killer or something. They're a monster. Yeah, I agree. And they need a throat agree, punch because that's the worst. Um, so, so that's actually, not right. right. So. So people are paying attention. So you're, you're doing that right now mm-hmm. and you're still jamming and playing out. You are, yes, you are super, a little you are bit. super mom. You are totally involved in every aspect of your kid's life. 120%. Yeah. And that's just like seeing it in just social media, you know, and I'm well aware of cash is in his basketball career just via social media. So you're a very proud mom. And you've also started something else this year, uh, last year, we first started talking that you've accomplished gardening yes and in your program you got invited into Mm -hmm. yeah really since covid but like that's when i jumped in full-blown yeah well that's uh, during covid but i didn't even know that i had a green thumb really i was like i love plants and loving around them and i grew Mm -hmm. up in california so it's just beautiful and green all the time there um even though that's not the native landscape but uh and then i started working for my neighbor who um she was actually stopped me on the street because she saw my big six foot nine, 240 pound son. And she's like, hey, I got a mulching job. Do you think clash I'll pay him, you know, 15 bucks an hour. Uh, you he, I need some help mulching. It's a big, strong guys, you know, and yeah. clash, uh, clash was like, well, I, he couldn't do it. He's like, I can't do it. I got basketball or whatever. And I was like, well, I'll do it. And yeah. so she's like, okay. And so I did a mulching job for her and it was so much work. And I didn't even know what mulch was. That's like how I, I, I didn't even, you know, it's like really? a huge pile of chips. Oh. And, and then I just would go with the shovel and put them in a wheelbarrow and then wheel them over and then dump them out. They go fill them up. It was just like days of just doing that in the heat. But I actually, um, I felt really good after I did it. It was like the first physical work I'd done in a long time. And then uh, I, I needed the work too. So I was just, I kept working for her. And then as I started to get to know Leslie, my boss, um, she's like the chair of the, our Woodcroft, like uh, the 
the groundkeepers and she's yeah. uh, been doing this for like 20 years and she's a botanist and she started educating me about native plants. I didn't know anything about how important it is that we learn about our native plants and that we start restoring our yards back to native yeah. um, and putting native plants in there to help to restore the ecosystem and plant for wildlife rather than it's called naturescaping rather than landscaping. And it's really important. <laughs> I didn't know how important it was. But the thing, I, I just started falling in love with it and falling in love with the landscape. And then uh, finding that the more time I spent outside and the more time I spent with the plants, the just the happier I felt, you know, um, yeah. the calmer I felt. And it felt like I had a purpose. I felt like I had a purpose, like for the first time in a long time, you know. And so... Uh, then I, I did the, um, the, I completed the Master Gardener. I entered the Master Gardener program, um, the Master Gardener Extension Cooperative program. So it's through NC State here. Uh, and it's really cool though. So if anybody that's watching, so if you love gardening, okay, so there, every single state in the United States has a Master Gardener Cooperative Extension program. It runs through the university in the state that has the land grant. So every state has land grants that are given, you know, so they're by the federal government, right? So they're right. the ours is NC State. Um, and um, and so what they do is they offer these programs and they started them in the 70s and it's called the Master Gardener Extension Program. And so they basically train members of the public to be to do community service and help the public and help educate the public about different different ways of sustainable gardening and how to, and you answer questions, you work with the public. And so they basically are like, we'll give you a loose degree and it, you are gonna perform community service hours. And in order to certify every year, you have to, uh, you have to more perform 40 hours a year of community service. Most of us do a lot more than that. I'm already at 40 hours and it has yeah. been just since January. So, um, and, it's pretty cool. So you're connected to, there's, there's 83,000 master gardeners in 51 states that perform 8 million hours of community service a year. It's the largest nonprofit in the United States. Isn't that cool? It's it's awesome. Anyone can serve it. And so it's so cool because once you become a master gardener, it's like you meet all the master gardeners and everyone knows each other, even from different states and stuff. And you get access to all these like lectures at the university. You guys have any secret handshakes? You just are connected to this. I wish we did. We need them though. Yes, we need some. I'm on the uh, orchard team right now at the Briggs Community Garden. So I'm learning how to grow to propagate uh grow and um take care of uh, small fruit trees so we're do i'm doing uh we're doing pears plums apples peaches pawpaws elderberries um persimmons and uh, i'm forgetting something i can't think of a black bear uh, i think it's no, great that's not true. um you know yeah think. but yeah my and um i want to I don't know if I can do bees on my property, so I got to find out about that. I actually did a bee course, like that course, but online. You'd be surprised. You'd be very surprised. So I'm in bee school right now. um, I got a grant from the Master Gardener. So yeah, anytime you want to do anything like that, they just basically give you, you're sure able to um, get in and learn. They, you know, like that was just, there was a message coming in loud and clear. I don't know what times we're heading into, you know, but like people that know how to, uh, that or assist that know how to live yeah, a sustainable yeah, lifestyle yeah. and can grow food and stuff like you know it's it's incredible uh, so they can do and but just helping the environment just on, on its own and doing this is like yes you know, it's just, I, like with bees I'm, I'm like all right and that thing at work and they're like i've been thinking about bees for a while and uh some program and they they sent me a little a little bee box and and you know to like the little you know like the for the, the for like oh. the bees, bees like a little bee home right like a bee hostel yeah no so that's my entry. It's my gate, my gateway drug into bees. And I got that. I put it together and I hung it up and been trying to do the courses and going online and listening. I got to figure out though, if I can have a, I have actually have them on my property. Do you have a HOA? I have, um, do I have a what? An HOA? HOA. Homeowners Association? Uh, no. I'm, like do you live in any kind of no, you, have, like HOA? No, no, no. I have a house, just regular house. I have a little under an acre. It's just, I don't know. If, I think I can. But my only I'll bet here. you can't because people huh? even in HOA, which have really strict rules, yeah. like about like you can't have like 
vegetables growing in your front yard. They most of them don't even allow raised beds where people can see them from view of the street. Um, Cause uh, the guys, the people that do the bee school, it's the Durham County Beekeepers Association. So uh, one of the main guys for Durham County, he lives in Woodcroft, lives in my subdivision and he's got, uh, they, he keeps bees. And so, cause I was like, man, they're really strict here. And he's like, yeah, but it's really not a, it's really not a, um, you absolutely could do it. <laughs> like, what is what I'm learning is that like you, I'm so blown away at how many people could keep bees, really? keep I think bees my, in my like is, pretty small areas. People are keeping them on their roofs in downtown Durham right now. But and the bees are fine. Bee are fine safety though too. Like I'm like, all right, because you don't want them too close. Like I have a pool, so I want to put them too close to the pool because of water. So you got to their own waterway and they have their own, their own clear pathways to go. Mm-hmm. I'm like, where can I put it? I have a good size yard, but I'm like, where can I put it where it's not going to be the neighbors? Are, kids are going to come over and mess with them. Like I want to make sure the bees are safe. You know what I mean? It's a you know it's a concern that nobody. Well, with. the the Mark had when I was I've been I worked on Waller Family Farm. It's like a strawberry farm. Um, uh, and Mark kept the bees like, and I'm talking. We had probably I was working there like six days a week. I want to say we had a hundred. We probably had seven hundred people coming through there a week at yeah. least. And those bees were like twenty feet away. And that he had like probably three or four, five hives, like a lot of bees, because they wow. made their own honey and sold. I mean, they they had their own honey and they it's sold like their a, own honey off like the farm. There. And, a hive, and they were right? really close. Nobody no. messed with them. The kid, people walk right by those beehives. It was just like here was the there, it was like the structure, like a uh, like a look, not even a mm-hmm. barn. It was like a small barn. And then the bees, the hives were right behind it, and people walk right right past that all the time. No, the bees didn't bother anybody. This has been a bonus. Not just rock and roll. This is rock and gardening. This has been uh, <laughs> awesome. Cool. Good bee talk. I love to talk bees. Never get to talk about bees with anybody, too. So I love it. It's been fantastic. I want to I want to thank you for, for taking the time today. I want people to check out all of your stuff. Your links. Uh, well, thank you. Thank, thanks for thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks for being so patient. I know it's been like a minute to like get this whole thing together, but uh, I appreciate it. You being 